millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome, fellow time travelers. It's always lovely to have you with me. Uh, as we travel through time and space together. Thanks to everyone who signed up to my Patreon site. If you don't know about Patreon, here's how it works. Uh, it's a subscription site, so by joining up and becoming a member, you help support my podcasts. Uh, you'll also get access to well, rewards, exclusive content. Every week you get a new vodcast, which I film here at home in Stirling. Where we also run competitions and uh, we give members a chance to suggest topics for specials. So there's a lot going on. It's a great little community, getting bigger all the time. Go to patreon.com, search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Uh, Okay, time to strap yourselves into the time machine, people. We're off to meet the mysterious Chariot Warriors in the next episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. By main force, they easily overpowered the rulers of the land, They then burned our cities ruthlessly, razed to the ground the temples of the gods and treated all the natives with a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others. Kingdoms and powerful city-states rising and falling. Exodus, emigrants, refugees and wanderers. Stories fossilised in the Bible as new technologies drove change and the legend of the centaur rode into history. In ancient Egypt, the finest chariots ever conceived were unleashed in war against the mighty Hyksos, and these mysterious foreign kings were driven out, leaving not a trace of their existence behind. Endeavouring to understand history in order to try and illuminate the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we watched the germination of the world's oldest religion. Which moment in history are we travelling to this week? Hi Paul. Yes, uh, we watched as a refined and all-encompassing culture spread right across the Indian subcontinent, helping to unify a landmass the size of Europe. This week, we're heading to ancient Egypt to witness the moment this incredible empire, which lasted for centuries, brings all its power and ingenuity to bear and releases the gods of war. The moment in the story of the world this week, Paul, is back in Egypt. It takes us quite a while to escape the 
gravitational pull of Egypt. Uh, Egypt, in its own self-contained way, mattered for a long time. It's such a long period. It's thousands of years of Egyptian civilization. It's quite useful to think about it in terms of a kind of a triple-layered sponge cake. A lower sponge, which is the Old Kingdom, then an indeterminate, quite thin layer of jam called the First Intermediate Period, then another sponge called the Middle Kingdom, then a second indeterminate thin layer of jam called the Second Intermediate Period, and then topped off with the Third Sponge, which is the New Kingdom. And a lot of the really exciting stuff that people think about in terms of Egypt happens in the New Kingdom. You've got all the Ramesses pharaohs and you've got their greatest uh, extent of their geographical dominance happens in that that top layer of sponge. How long, what's the time scale of these things? How long did they last? It's 3,000 years of, of Egyptian history. Wow. The kingdoms, the, th- the, the old Middle and New Kingdom, they last for centuries. But they're broken up by these two periods called the intermediate periods. The three thick layers of sponge are times of uh, control, dominance, cohesion. But they're punctuated by these two thin layers of disruption, some chaos, followed each time by, by, the, by the Egyptians reasserting control and pulling it all back together again. The, the moment that we're interested in, it's in the second intermediate period, that second thin layer of jam that comes before the new kingdom. And it's a time of, of uncertainty and disruption. And to this day, Egyptologists and historians, they don't agree entirely on what happened. And for me, that lack of certainty actually makes it all the more interesting. I I like the idea, you you tend to think of the Egyptologists having that whole period screwed down pretty tightly, but they don't. And this is periods for hundreds of years, where even the specialists who invest lifetimes in in the study, they they can't agree. Some of them are certain about certain things, but they don't, there's not consensus across the piece. The time of of Egypt, obviously it has within it the time of the patriarchs of the Old Testament of the Bible. Enfolded within that great expanse of of Egyptian time are the stories involving the figures that even if you're not a, a person of faith, even if you don't read the Bible, you will almost certainly have heard of people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. These are names that you just, you can't grow up in the... Judeo-Christian world as we have and not at least have heard those names you maybe wouldn't be able to say much more about them than than that they were biblical figureheads if you thought about it even for a moment you would accept that those those figures cast shadows long shadows uh, over the three great monotheisms Judaism the religion of the Jews Christianity and Islam those figures matter to all three of those great faiths. They're understood in different ways within those three faiths, but they're, they're there, kind of immovable, immovable figures. And you, you tend, you, a lot of us have come to think of the Bible as being 
almost like fairy stories, almost like the stuff of childhood. You know, those that dismiss the Bible just tend to th- dismiss it all as myth, mumbo-jumbo, makey-uppy. But if you think about it just for a minute, you would probably have to reasonably accept that there were real flesh-and-blood figures behind those names. And the reality of them, the truth of them, is certainly obscured to a certain extent by all the telling and the retelling that, that has gone on. But I think we can all accept that there were real figures there. Now, the first of them is Abraham. And it's useful, especially in this day and age, a time of uh, mass migration around the world, emigrants, immigrants, refugees. It's interesting, really, to think about Abraham as maybe that, maybe a refugee or an emigrant. He, he came out of when the Mesopotamian city-state of Ur, with which we began our story of the world, within Hedioana, when that city-state collapsed, there was great upheaval. And people scattered and moved moved away from it, moving in all sorts of directions. And Abraham uh, was one of those. If you want to tie it down to real time, he was probably on the move sometime around 1,800 years before the birth of Christ. So the better part of 4,000 years ago. He left the city-state, Ur, and he settled... Don't think about him moving on his own. He's probably the figurehead of a tribe or certainly of a big extended family. So he's not moving on his own. He's coming with people. And he and they settle in Canaan. There's a good biblical place name. Uh, you know, they, they, they settle in the land of Canaan, which is in the Levant. So obviously he has descendants. You know, he has wives, he has, he has offspring. And those people on the move dispossessed, homeless, rootless for a while, for an unspecified period of time. They are the Hebrews. Now, we think of Hebrew really as a language, which it is. But Hebrew, the word, it means wanderer. That's literally what it means. So it's as likely to have been applied by the people that they moved among. They were seen to be wandering. That's more of them. <laughs> there's more of those. There's more of those wandering types, you know, that that tend to pass through. Hebrew is actually mentioned in for the first time. It's written down for the first time in Egyptian texts of the 14th century BC, which would be you know, 1,400 years before the birth of Christ and onwards. But by that time, the Hebrews had been on a, on the move for a while. And according to the Bible story, and remember the Bible stories, they're based on something factual. Something really happened to real people. And it was of an importance and a significance that means that that story is with us to the present day. So whatever happened, and however it's been, you know, mythologised and the truth of it has been muddied, it was real people really on the move. In a time of, you know, famine, some kind of hardship, maybe conflict. Some of those Hebrews came out of Canaan and into Egypt. Okay, and one of the named names in in the Bible stories is Jacob, who's another of the patriarchs, the father figures. And everyone who's seen Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, Jacob's the father of, of 12 sons. 
And Jacob, uh, he of the coat, he left the family behind and went ahead and he established himself somehow or other as a senior official for Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay, so he got he got in there ahead. But he was followed in time by more of his kind. The truth of why he was on the move, it's difficult to tell. But this this was happening. This movement of these these Hebrews, perhaps headed up by Jacob, it's happening around the time of that second intermediate period in Egyptian history. The Egypt that they are, that they are within is an Egypt that has come out of a, a long period of certainty and cohesion, and it's now in one of those thin layers of jam, which the historians and the Egyptologists struggle properly to understand exactly what was happening when, but the Hebrews are in the mix of it. They're in there. And what we are confident of is that the second intermediate period was a time when part of Egypt was ruled by a people called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. Now, no one to this day knows who the Hyksos were. And inconveniently, they leave nothing behind. They're around for a while, they dominate part of Egypt for a while, but when they go and the Egypts get back into control, the, the Egyptians wipe the blackboard clean. How long were they in control for? Hundreds of years. Okay, so the, the, the Hyksos comes from two Egyptian words, Hegakas, which means foreign kings. So the Egyptians remembered a time when they were ruled by outsiders, or at the very least people that they didn't consider to be Egyptians. For the sort of blood and soil nationalist Egyptians, these people weren't right. They were from the outside in some way. But we might simplify what was going on there and say that it was a time when Egypt lost its way and outsiders took control, certainly in what's called the Lower Kingdom, which is the Nile Delta, which is that part of Egypt where the Nile goes into the Mediterranean. Okay, that's the Lower Kingdom. It seems reasonable to say that it would only have been in a time of uncertainty and a lack of cohesion that foreign leaders and a foreign people could have risen to dominance. You know, for example, a Joseph of the Hebrews, who arrived in Egypt for whatever reason as an outsider, could only have risen to dominance, you know, for want of indigenous figures being in control. You know, if you think about it, why, why is someone coming in from Canaan? Why would, why would he rise up through the ranks? It's because it was a period of, of uncertainty. Centuries after that time, maybe three or four centuries, there's an exodus out of Egypt by at least some of those Hebrews. And this is the time of Moses. Okay, so the Hebrews, having been in Egypt for hundreds of years, maybe three or four hundred years, they leave. They are led out of Egypt by Moses. And after a long and uncertain period of time, they arrive in Canaan. They go back into the land from which their forefathers had come which is regarded at that point as the promised land. And the way we read the Old Testament uh, has the Joseph and his people's arrival in Egypt from Canaan and then subsequently their departure back into Canaan. 
The way the Old Testament tells it, it happens to just one group of people. A group of people who sort of understand themselves as a defined group throughout. But more recently, Egyptologists and historians have suggested that that story was deliberately assembled over time, deliberately to give a sense of identity to two distinct groups. It was in the interests to bring those two groups together as one. And so the, the folk story, the back story, was reverse-engineered after the fact to give credibility to the idea that the same people that left Canaan and went into Egypt then, after a period of a few hundred years, left Egypt and came back. But it seems more likely that there were two groups, one that originated in Egypt and the second that originally came out of Mesopotamia. You know, see, so you've got one group of people arriving in Canaan out of the West, which is Egypt, and you've got another group arriving in Canaan out of the East, which is Mesopotamia. And sometime later, it was sort of politically expedient to create a backstory that's, that, that, that blurred that and made it all happen to the same people. You know, to give the people a sense of togetherness and a sense of being as one. So they would say Moses led them all from, from yeah, Egypt. Yeah, yeah. It was all the same people. Yeah. But, it, but it seems more likely that it, it's a backstory that gives unity to two different groups of people. And there are clues that, that make that seem likely. For a start, the name Moses, it has its roots in the Egyptian language because you see it in other famous Egyptian names like Amos and Tutmos. You know, th th those are Egyptian names. Those are pharaonic names with the same sound in them. You know, so whoever the Hebrews were, it seems likely that Joseph was an Egyptian and led a group of Egyptians out of Egypt and into Canaan. Okay, so it's so it's enough just to think that that Bible story is a is a is a creation out of expediency to give a sense of togetherness to more than one group of people. I can't tell. No one can tell a story of the world without at least touching on the stories that are fossilized in the Bible. But, but what is fascinating, whatever your position on the, on the significance or not of the Bible, it, it's just at least fascinating to look beyond the, the shadows and those stories that we all heard at school, uh, populated by shadowy figures like Abraham, like Joseph, like Moses, and to see them as real people. You know, to remember that somewhere amongst it is, is the reality of those individuals. And it's also fascinating to accept that they were moving within and among the people known as Hyksos. That's the world that they're a part of. That's the Egypt that they're a part of. So then we have to consider the Hyksos themselves. Now, they may have been invaders. I mean, look at our civilization in the West. You know, our civilization in the West feels like it's fraying. It feels like it's losing its sense of identity, its sense of cohesion. And you can imagine a group taking it by the scruff of the neck, taking control. It's in periods like this that we are in now that a different group 
can take control and move things in a slightly different direction. So it may well be the case that, Egypt, that the Egyptian civilization was kind of, you know, had for some reason or a combination of reasons had lost a bit of cohesion. And perhaps the Hyksos uh, were looking on at that from beyond the borders of Egypt and took their chance. Maybe there was an invasion. Maybe there was a coordinated move by these outsiders seeing that the time was right. Or, alternatively, they may have been a group of immigrants, people who had come in from the east or had come in from the north, who were living as immigrants within Egypt. And perhaps during the time of crisis by the locals, they they took an opportunity to take control for themselves. Or if there was a power vacuum because the ruling group you know, ceased to function properly, they, they may have been pulled in by that power vacuum. But in any event, there was also a crucial role, and a, here is where we actually start getting to the moment, the moment in, this, in the story of the world. It's also about technology. Again, look at us at the moment. You know, a, a lot of what's happening, a lot of the changes that are happening at the moment are about technology and adapting to technology, as well as different peoples coming into Egypt. Some of those people seem to have brought in an advanced technology that the Egyptians at that time couldn't cope with, and by which they were overwhelmed. Now, if we go back in history to Sumer, where we find the city-state of Ur, there are already illustrations on walls and elsewhere of soldiers being moved around in four-wheeled wagons pulled by asses or other beasts of burden so that we know that thousands of years ago people had understood the value of you know moving people about in wheeled vehicles but they were hardly weapons of war if they were used in war it would they would have been little more than taxis really moving armored men towards the battlefield also you know I'm trying I'm trying here to sketch in the background to warfare using chariots but it's an evolution and part of that evolution is provided by an Indo-European people called the Kassites, and they came out of Iran, specifically the Zagros Mountains. We know about them because they attacked Babylon around 1,800 years BC. So at the time when there was some sort of upheaval in Egypt, the Kassites were were also on the move. Now, they had horse-drawn vehicles. They were beaten off at that time, but they came back into Babylon a couple of hundred years later and then ruled for 500 years or so. Now, the Kassites were among the first people who had domesticated horses. In fact, the Kassites worshipped horses. So significant were they to their civilization. The Kassites had learned how to harness their horses to two-wheeled vehicles. So not the four-wheeled clumsy carts of the Sumerians, but much more manoeuvrable two-wheeled vehicles. So by the time the Hyksos arrive in Egypt, whoever they were, they had chariots, okay? Now, they don't just come in with chariots, they've also got, we know this from illustrations and from the records, they've got composite bows for shooting arrows, and they've got socketed bronze axes. Now, it sounds pretty primitive to us, but that combination, chariots, with men aboard armed with bronze axes and with bows. You know, that's the arrival of superior technology. The Egyptians at that time, their army was infantry, and they were carrying things like maces, stones on the end of chains, or stones on the end of ropes, and they were lightly armoured. So up against an enemy, 
with chariots. The chariots were iron shod. The wheels were, were uh, rimmed with iron, another metal that the Egyptians knew nothing about at that point. So in a time of uncertainty, in a time of disruption anyway, there suddenly appears among them the Hyksos, who've got iron-wheeled chariots and they've got composite bows and they've got bronze axes and the Egyptians are overwhelmed. So th- this, is, this is how the Hyksos, the foreign kings, come to, come to dominance. You know, they might as well be aliens arriving in their UFOs. So technologically challenging are they for those, for those Egyptians? The Egyptians had never seen the like and they were briefly overwhelmed. It's interesting, so a side note really, that, that horse riding, um, it was old in some parts of the world, obviously. You know, it, it, people were riding horses and using horses in some areas thousands of years before horse riding and domestication of the horse was, was attempted anywhere else. And there, there, is a, there is a theory that um, the Greek legend of the centaur, half horse, half man, is a folk memory of the first men on horseback. If you've never seen a horse, and you've certainly never seen a man riding a horse, your first encounter with them, you might think that you're dealing with a composite animal. You know, so you can, you can imagine how the idea of the centaur in Greek mythology might have come from just glimpses maybe. You know, people who were wiped out by mounted men and the few survivors, you know, who, who, you know, who, who got away from the scene described these things that were half, you know, a four-legged men. You can imagine how that would get about. So, you know, the, even the advent of, of horse riding and mastery of the horse was a significant technological advance and shocking and surprising when it arrives amongst people who've seen neither. So at that time, did the Egyptians didn't have horses? No, they didn't have any of that. This is all new to them. This is all new to them. So this is, this is what begins centuries of Hyksos rule, rule of Egypt, Lower Egypt, that half of Egypt closest to the Nile Delta, by foreign kings. Native Egyptian kings retain control in Upper Egypt at Thebes, further down into the desert of Africa. But although they're still notionally in control of their territory, they're paying homage to the Hyksos. You know, so they have to bend, they have to take the knee. And that kind of experience for people, ruled by outsiders, it's hard. And it's, it's also unforgettable. People remember being conquered and being dominated by foreigners. It leaves deep scars, which are remembered and recounted long after the fact. So imagine the Egyptians, imagine the locals. They're dominated, but amongst them are those who are determined that it will not last and that they will reassert themselves. And what happens is that they learn, they watch, they pay attention to the technology of the Hyksos and they take it for themselves. And after some period of time, 100 years, 200 years, who knows, They've quietly mastered all of it. Iron, spoked wheels, the chariot, the weaponry. They not only take it for their own, they become the greatest exponents of it. The Egyptians elevate the chariot to the time of its brightest flower, its greatest incarnation. Eventually, the the Egyptians, in a significant technological advance of their own, they move the axle from the middle of the platform to the rear of it, which makes it infinitely more manoeuvrable. 
infinitely more nimble on the battlefield. The Hyksos had one man on the platform guiding the horses and a second man beside him with spears. The Egyptians replaced the spear thrower with an archer armed with a composite bow. And eventually they refined the chariot. This is the moment. This is the moment that matters. They refined the chariot to the point where it's so light that it can be carried over short distances by just one man. So if he needs to, he can pick the chariot up and cart it across a river or whatever. This is the moment when the Egyptians, who'd been subjugated by the foreign kings with their damned chariots, turn that same weapon back on the invader. This is the moment, from my point of view, that matters at this point in this story of the world. Up at Thebes, in the Upper Kingdom, there's a, an Egyptian king, a natural-born, blood-and-soil Egyptian king called Second Henry, Second Henry Dao, uh, and he is, like the rest of them, he's been taking the knee to the, to the Hyksos. But what he does, rebellious spirit that he is, he seems to rebel against the Hyksos religion, and he tells his people to begin worshipping Ra again, the old god of the Egyptians. And word of this reaches the Hyksos king in Lower Egypt, in the Delta. He's a popey, and he sends an army to crush Second Henry and his rebellious ways. That initial rebellion under Second Henry is crushed, and Second Henry is killed in battle. But the spirit of rebellion, it's a bit like William Wallace, if you like. You know, he dies, but the spirit of rebellion remains. And it's under his son Amos, with that same sound as Moses, Amos I, he continues with the campaign of rebellion. And after some years, with the chariot and all the rest of it, he and his forces are able to retake Egypt. So they drive out the Hyksos and they retake the lower kingdom and bring the whole thing back together again. And it's all made possible by technology. They're invaded by technology, they have to be submissive to the new technology for a while, but rather than staying on their knees, they get up and quietly take that, that technology for their own and use it as the tool that enables them to push the invader out. So at that point, after whatever, a couple of hundred years, maybe more, two, three, four hundred years perhaps, the Hyksos are pushed out of Egypt. Uh, and they're not just pushed out of Egypt, they're pushed all the way to Canaan. Which is what, I mean, for a long time there are still those, in fact, who think that once the Egyptians reclaimed their own land, that for a while they enslaved the Hyksos, put them to work for them, held them captive as a people, and then at some point, those Hyksos managed to escape. So that there, there has been a long folk tradition that the Hyksos were the Hebrews. That by the time the Hyksos got away from their enslavement and fled towards Canaan, that they themselves were the biblical Hebrews who fled Pharaoh, crossed the Red Sea and all, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and all the rest of it. That's largely been set aside now. That is, that is largely been set aside. But what it serves to do is to indicate that Egyptologists and historians are not clear to this day what happened. They're certainly not clear what happened. They just know that the time of the Hyksos passed. What precisely became of the Hyksos, nobody knows because they leave next to nothing behind them. Because history ultimately is written by the victors. 
And although the foreign kings were dominant for two, three, four hundred years in Egypt, once they were removed, the victorious Egyptians undid everything that the Hyksos had done. Much later on, in the first century AD, so centuries later, the Romano-Jewish historian Titus Flavius Josephus, looking back through the records, found the writings of an Egyptian historian called Manetho, who had himself kept accounts of what the Hyksos had done in, in the homeland of Egypt. And to quote from that, For what cause I know not, a blast of God smote us, and unexpectedly from the regions of the east, invaders of obscure race marched in, marched in confidence of victory against our land. By main force they easily overpowered the rulers of the land. They then burned our cities ruthlessly, razed to the ground the temples of the gods, and treated all the natives with a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others. Now, Manetho was writing in the 3rd century BC, so he himself was writing long, long after, centuries after the Hyksos had been driven out. But the, the bitterness with which he was able to write after all that time gives you an idea of how, the, how, how bitter had been remembered the time of the Hyksos, for whatever reason. So, you know, as I say, in the, in the, in the intervening period, whatever was of the Hyksos, almost nothing has been recovered by archaeologists and Egyptologists because at the end of the day, they were ground into the dust and the sand of the desert by the iron-rimmed wheels of the chariots that the Egyptians had learned to use against their sometime oppressors. A civilization powering forward across a vast landmass, an era of great change brought on by either invasion or evolution, and a sacred text recited and remembered for thousands of years. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon, Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.